everyone, welcome to Business Lines Pulse podcast that tunes into all things health and pharmaceuticals. I'm Jyoti Datta. Earlier this month, the world marked uh, World Cancer Day. And uh, with cancer as it is with all things health, it's never just about one day. Many of us have had experiences in our lives where we've had to handle it for ourselves or for someone close to us. But that's at a personal level. On a public health level, the World Health Organization recently pointed out access and inequity concerns uh, when it comes to hand- cancer treatment and diagnosis uh, and so on. So in their words, low and middle income countries stand disproportionately affected in terms of cancer cases and deaths. And according to them, by 2040, over 70% of cancer deaths are expected to occur in these regions. To give us an insight into initiatives undertaken to streamline cancer treatment, bring in the conversation on palliative care, and to understand how people with cancer have been coping through the pandemic. We have with us Dr. C.S. Pramesh, Director with Tata Memorial Hospital, the country's largest cancer center. Thank you, Doctor, for taking time to be with us here today. Uh, thank you, Jyoti. It's a pleasure being part of this, and thank you for the invitation. Thank you. So um, COVID, as we've seen during the time of COVID, most treatments and surgeries have been kind of put on the back burner, especially in the early days and then later as the waves returned. But with Tata Memorial, we've seen that y'all have managed to keep uh, services open right through. So could you just give us an insight on how you managed to, uh, you know, keep the hospital services going, even if it were at a, you know, sort of lower uh, key? But uh, while other private hospitals, you know, were being impacted and had to go to, through quarantine when their health workers were affected and so on. Yes, that's a really uh, important question that we need to look at. Uh, the problem with uh, how COVID has affected cancer care is multifold. And if you go through what's happened over the last two years, not only have you had a large number of people getting affected by and some of them even dying of COVID, but the impact on other diseases and the cancer is just one example of that. There are several other diseases like uh, tuberculosis, the problems of mental health, childhood immunization, which have also suffered as a consequence. Uh, The way we approach this, and we did this very early in the pandemic, as early as March uh, 2020, was to take a conscious decision that we would do our utmost to ensure that cancer care was not affected uh, regardless of the magnitude of the COVID pandemic. And uh, the way we achieved this was to, uh, uh, through uh, different ways, one of the things that we did was to segregate the hospital into COVID and non-COVID areas so that there was no admixing of patients. And being a pure cancer facility, this was of utmost importance because patients with cancer are in any case immunocompromised and we did not want to take the risk of uh, getting them exposed to people with COVID. The second initiative that we took was to uh, adopt certain facilities and we used several facilities which the uh, Mumbai, uh, the BMC uh, had uh, taken up and we got certain beds reserved for patients with cancer and COVID. And we became de facto the referral center for patients with cancer who developed COVID. And we took this responsibility not just for our own patients with cancer, but for patients with cancer across the city and several other parts of the state as well. So we were able to very quickly ramp up our uh, uh, capabilities of uh, treating patients. So at at one point we were treating close to 200 additional beds, which we had, uh, which were dedicated for uh, patients with cancer who developed COVID. 
So as a result of this, we were able to ensure that uh, the routine cancer care at no point suffered, except for a brief period in April and May uh, last year, when uh, more because of the lockdown, uh, where patients were finding it difficult to reach Mumbai. And as you know, 85% uh, of our patients come from outside the city of Mumbai and 60% of them come from outside uh, Maharashtra. So except for these two months, uh, we've been pretty much uh, offering complete uh, unrestricted facilities uh, for patients with cancer in the hospital. That's quite remarkable. I know it's been written about also. That's uh, really a learning, I think, for even other hospitals to pick up. But you did point out on uh, immunocompromised uh, patients, Doc. So, you know, this whole thing about boosters and of uh, the COVID shot, now whether they call it precautionary uh, doses and all of that. Now, the thing is, there is a cutoff. Um, it's for the elderly. Uh, age, there is an age cutoff and it's for the elderly with comorbidities. But, you know, oncologists and uh, many other specialists have also pointed out they sort of worry about their young patients. So what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I think it's very important to recognize that age, while by itself, is an important prognostic factor for COVID. The, the fact is that the elderly get more severe COVID and have a higher chance of dying of COVID rather than young uh, patients, and they should, should certainly be prioritized. The other demography that we have to also prioritize is those who are immunocompromised. Cancer is just one example. There are several other diseases like uh, AIDS, like uh, some of the uh, other connective tissue disorders, which are also uh, people who have had an organ transplant. All of them are immunocompromised and uh, we should certainly prioritize them. I'm hoping that once the government uh, completes the, the above 60 uh, age group for their uh, booster of their precautionary doses, this will be extended at least to those who are below 60 who have these other comorbidities and uh, uh, immunosuppressed states. It's very, very important because they can get disproportionately severe COVID if they do uh, contract the infection. Correct. Have you all approached government on this or have there been discussions already? So there are the, 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 the task forces discussing this and uh, we are aware that this is one area where uh, there is a lot of uh, discussion within the uh, government as well as the task force. And we are hoping that sooner rather than later, uh, this will be opened up to at least include these uh, groups of individuals. Right. So um, the other initiative that you're very closely involved with is the um, cancer grid, the national cancer grid. Uh, so for those uh, who are listening in, maybe if you can explain in your own words how this is going. And you've had an, a good meeting, I know, even in 2019. So how is it and how is it doing now? So the Cancer Grid is an initiative uh, which is uh, funded by the Government of India through the Department of Atomic Energy and the Tata Memorial Center. And the main aim when we started this about a decade back was to have uniform standards of care. So you did mention earlier on when we started this discussion about the lack of equity and access when it comes to uh, cancer care in India and in actually uh, even uh, in other parts of the world. And to me, that is a much bigger problem than the uh, lack of cutting edge new treatments that are uh, now being developed in uh, high income countries. If, for example, today we were to be able to offer the same level of care with, with uh, what we know today is effective, we would be able to save many more lives than many of the newer cutting edge advances that are coming at a very high cost in high income countries. So this was the basis upon which the cancer grid was uh, created 10 years back. 
and uh, initially this was opened up for uh, regional cancer centers and government hospitals but then we realized that a vast majority of uh, patients with cancer do access private care so in an effort to get them also into the fold this was opened up to any cancer facility treating patients with cancer in the country and over a period of uh, of uh, 10 years this has grown into a very large organization probably the largest cancer care network in the world and today we are at uh, 260 plus cancer centers we have grown to include research institutions uh, which research on cancer uh, patient groups professional societies and charitable organizations so it's become a quite a formidable force against uh, cancer in the country and between these 260 plus uh, member organizations we treat over 750000 new patients with cancer annually and just to give you context that's approximately uh 55 to 60% of all of india's cancer burden so any initiative that is taken within the cancer grid has the ability to scale up very rapidly and have huge impact so some of the activities that we've been involved in are uh, to have uniform standards of care so the ncg members have signed on to to adhering to a uniform set of guidelines treating uh, cancers in india and uh, increasingly this has also been adopted by the uh, uh, abpmj or the aishman bharat as it is popularly known and linked it to the reimbursement under this scheme so this is likely to have huge impact as far as the quality of cancer care across the country is concerned right so it streamlines uh, uh, you know it has guidelines streamlining treatments and uh, having some sort of a standard operational uh, kind of uh, procedures that's right so this is just one of the activities uh, the ncg is acti- uh, is is working on close to 20 parallel activities all of which work towards improving access reducing inequity increasing the quality of care dissemination of information and promoting collaborative cancer research so under these broad he- heads there are several initiatives which the cancer grid has been involved which has worked very well over the last decade it's that's really a huge task and all of which is you know exceptionally important when it comes especially to cancer i suppose yeah doc one uh, conversation that we've been having of late i mean earlier in smaller uh, fewer people talking about it now we hear of it more is uh, palliative care and uh, while you know it's it's sort of vaguely understood as being end of uh, life care most there's now the effort to mainstream it as you know a uh, more of an option to live well uh, in a sense uh, with that with the illness that one has so how do you see this doctor and uh, is pain management being understood uh, better in the country now so palliative care in my view is a very very important component of the overall spectrum of care that we are able to offer patients with cancer though palliative care is relevant even in non cancer situations a large proportion of cancer patients uh, do require uh, quality palliative care and unfortunately in my mind uh, it has been uh, associated too much as uh, end of life and even amongst the physicians treating cancer the moment you say palliative care they equated to giving up on the patient and uh, and and kind of uh, condemning them to uh, just end of life it couldn't be further from the truth because uh, palliative care just means uh, treatment of symptoms and even early stage patients with cancer uh, patients with early stage cancer also have symptoms and uh palliative care is as relevant to them as much as it is to patients with advanced disease so this is one image that really needs to change uh, both amongst the lay public as well as amongst physicians and even amongst uh, uh, cancer specialists uh, 
Uh, we've had a very strong emphasis on palliative care through the National Cancer Grid. And in fact, we've made earnest requests to the leaderships of cancer centers to have palliative care, dedicated palliative care departments in their respective organizations. The palliative care subcommittee within the National Cancer Grid is one of the strongest and the most passionate about how they work. And through this, they've also been able to create guidelines for palliative care, which also are now being considered by the Aishman Bharat. Pain relief is a very important component of not just palliative care, but about routine cancer care as well. And especially in advanced disease, I strongly think that uh, the, uh, the kind of pain relief that we are providing is much, much lower than what it should be. If you look at morphine consumption globally and uh, compared to India, we are a very small fraction of what it ideally should be. There are some states like Kerala and to some extent Maharashtra, which have uh, solved this problem to some extent and ensured that pain relief is uh, available to all, but it's a long uh, way away from what it should be as an ideal as far as palliative care in India is concerned. Absolutely. In fact, I was going to ask you on that because it often gets embroiled in all sorts of uh, other conversations, except for the fact that it is medically, uh, you know, absolutely required uh, in terms of pain management. So, yeah. What do you think needs to be done here? Is it more from a government point of view or is it more from, a, you know, access uh, production point of view? So it, it, it's a bit of both, but I also strongly believe that the oncology community, uh, not just the palliative care physicians, but the entire oncology community needs to uh, understand the importance of uh, adequate pain relief. And especially in uh, advanced disease with a limited lifespan, not allow uh, considerations like uh, possible uh, addiction or uh, uh, misuse, yeah. dependence on the drug, because right. you're actually talking of someone who's uh, towards the end of life. And it's far more important to give that individual a dignified death and uh, a peaceful, painless death, rather than be concerned about uh, uh, what happens if the person will get dependent on it or addicted to it. And uh, there's very strong data to support the fact that this improves quality of life. In fact, there is actually uh, very strong data to support the fact that early integration of palliative care into treatment improves not just quality of life, but also survival. In a disease as lethal as lung cancer, there have been very good studies which have shown that incorporating uh, palliative care early into the disease process actually improves uh, the quantity as well as the quality of life. I do hope it gets more mainstreamed and, you know, governments put in control so that there isn't misuse and it, you know, it's usefully, uh, you know, sort of supplied to hospitals and uh, doctors and wherever there is the medical use. Right. Uh, Actually, the government has done quite a bit to ease these regulations. Uh, a, a few years back, it was extremely difficult to procure morphine. Now, right. it's become very uh, streamlined and it's possible, but still uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a part of both that the the cancer centers and the oncologists also feel reluctant to, to prescribe these and to actually procure them and stock them in adequate supply. Right, right. Doc, you've also spoken about health technology assessment. I know each of these are like a conversation in themselves and I'm really asking you for like a, you know, a, a, the whole thing in a nutshell. But again, how does, how will this help in terms of, you know, whether it's the final uh, price or access related issues around treatment or or, or diagnostics for the uh, for the patient. Yes, this is a very very important question uh, uh, in all countries, but especially so in uh, middle income and uh, low middle income countries like uh, ours. The reason being that uh, healthcare budgets across the world are stretched, 
even in high income countries and certainly much more so in uh, low middle income countries and we have to ensure that the money that is getting spent in this uh, health budget is actually utilized optimally so health technology assessment helps us do that by uh, using health economics evaluations like incremental cost effectiveness ratios and uh, several other uh, uh, parameters that we use to see what is the value that is offered by a, a treatment that is uh, getting prescribed and by value i mean uh, the efficacy of the treatment how good is the treatment to improve suffering and disease and second what cost are we paying for it and finally is the cost that we are paying for it worth the improvement in outcomes that we are seeing and that mm -hmm. comes to the heart of what health technology assessment uh, is all about now uh, from uh, a, a very emotional point of view this might seem like rationing but what we need to understand is if we don't do this kind of rationing we are likely to spend uh, lots of money on uh, areas where the outcome improvement is not so well not so good and less money and less uh, output when it comes to areas where you have much more cost effective treatments and uh, which are more eff effective than the high value ones so this is a, a reality that we need to live with and uh, both from uh, the general public point of view from uh, government point of view as well as physicians point of view we need to understand that the health budget is not a bottomless pit and we need to be able to use this wisely to ensure that the maximum good comes out of this absolutely especially anything to do with cancer treatment i think also often comes down to discussing the cost and the price and all of that you know so i i suppose something like this this would be uh, the decision would really uh, sort of rest with the physicians uh, it's more in the realm of the medical community it would uh, work at the realm of the medical community and as far as the uh, payer is concerned so uh, india has a system where a lot of the expenditure is out of pocket which means that patients are put into this kind of a, a corner where they are told that you might improve survival by a couple of months but it will cost you a few uh, lakh of rupees and what do you want to do so now this is uh, oversimplifying the problem because for someone who's extremely wealthy this is a trade off that they would accept whereas for someone who has to sell his farm sell his house just to be able to uh, afford this treatment and that happens at a benefit of 2 to 3 okay. months of additional life you are bankrupting the family and putting the family into uh, a catastrophic healthcare expenditure which is from a overall point of view not a great outcome to uh, achieve right right a final question doctor i mean in terms of uh, you know um looking ahead what what uh, would be your thoughts or uh, advice that you would like to leave uh, people um, you know listening in to you today so i think there has to be uh, uh, an emphasis on quality and evidence based uh, management because what we've seen and covid was a great example of this was a complete failure of uh, evidence based care uh, when it came to treating it we were using a lot of uh, treatments which were not very effective purely by the panic that the entire pandemic brought on so i think to me uh, adherence to quality and evidence based care is extremely important uh, there are several good things that are happening in the system now for example the the health insurance scheme or the aishman bharat is something which is remarkable considering that it covers 40% of india's uh, uh, poor it's a huge uh, support to a, a, a group of individuals who otherwise would not have access to care so what was lacking in ashman bharat till now was the linkage to quality and evidence based guidelines and i'm hopeful that the the pilot that we are currently doing with cancer and the adherence being linked to reimbursements will 
promote the use of evidence-based care and quality care being provided to patients. And that by itself is something which is a, a remarkable achievement. And finally, we need to understand that uh, uh, we need to embrace te health technology assessment and health economics and be able to choose our recommendations wisely so that the money that is in the public healthcare realm is used for the maximum good rather than uh, a very skewed distribution of this money to uh, a fortunate few and the majority not getting access to even basic health care. Absolutely. This is a conversation that I will come back to you maybe in some time and uh, we'll see how that is progressing. But uh, for now, we'll end this interaction, doctor. So from the business line team and myself, thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jyoti. It's been a pleasure being part of this discussion. Thank you so much.